What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm delighted to, to be joined today by the one and only Ned Thomas. Ned's obviously a famous Welsh public intellectual, an author, a linguist, an activist, you know, a, a, a true great of modern Wales. Ned is perhaps best known for his book, The Welsh Extremist, first published in 1971, and for founding the magazine Planet, Welsh Internationalist which is by now an institution in its own right. So a series of you know fantastic achievements, and we're really honoured to have you here today, Ned. So welcome and thank you for coming on. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome. I missed Ned. the last bit. Oh, I just, I just said, well, I just said, welcome and thank you for coming on. Oh, right. <laughs> this is terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Um, well, very pleased to, to be with you, Dan, yes. No problem. Right, we'll get straight into it. Apologies for just talking about the, the Welsh extremists, because I know what it must be like. We write an iconic book, and it's all people want to talk about. But that's where we are, unfortunately for you. So um, why did you write The Welsh Extremist? You know, what prompted you to write it? Well, I came back to Wales, I gave up my job in London, which was at the time was editing the British government's magazine in Russian, believe it or not, which I'd learned the language in um, national service in the days of the Cold War. And I'd spent a year as a visiting academic in Moscow State University under uh, an agreement between governments. And it was a it was a, an easy job in a way and an interesting job, but you know it was soft propaganda, and I couldn't really square that. <laughs> so um, I could have gone back into journalism uh, because I'd worked for the old times newspapers, um, and I was indeed invited to go back to them, but. Um, it was a sort of period when you could drop out, you know, it was not uncommon to drop out and write a book or something like that. So, and I had small children who had been born in Spain, as it happened, and the very earliest years in in London, after being born in Spain. And um, I think part of the, you know, one one's motives and so on, when you look back, what drives you are a mixture of conscious aims, like writing a book, saying exactly what you think instead of being tied to the whatever milieu you've been in. But also, I think there's sort of deeper and less consciously, I, I, having only spent some three years of my own childhood in Wales, in rural Wales, I somehow wanted to transmit Welsh and this experience to my own children. So the dropping out was done to to Wales. And I had some contacts, I could do weekly columns and so on. So I had no I had no intention when I moved to write a book about Wales. I was going to write a novel, in fact, I persuaded the Welsh Arts Council to give me a short term, you know, three month long to finish a novel, which I never did, which was a bit embarrassing all round at the time <laughs> that it came out. So, um, so it was really 
And I certainly had no intention to go and edit another magazine, which I just left doing. The magazine I had been doing had a, a huge budget because we were supposed to show the best in everything British to, to Russia. So, you know, we could pay Graham Green for a short story or Iris Murdoch. We could get a fashion photographers to go and take pictures of British clothes and so on. So I had no sort of ambitions to do a magazine, which I, in fact, Planet, the first Planet came out before the Welsh extremist in 1970. So I came back in 1969. So the early numbers of Planet and the launch of Planet and the writing of the Welsh extremist coincide very closely. And if anybody cared to look at the contents of the early planets, you would see that when I was in the Welsh extremist, I'm discovering modern Welsh literature and writing about Saunders Lewis, Bernard, Kate Roberts, and so on. I'm also translating or commissioning somebody to translate the very bits that have impressed me in, in Planet. So it, and this period of sort of freelance existence, and I'm sure you know, you work very hard when you're freelance because you accept, I, you know, I did a lot of reviewing and things that really, when you, when you begin to cost your time, don't really pay you, but you do them because, so there was a period of about a year and a half before I, in fact, got a, a post at Aberystwyth University teaching English literature. And that period was a sort of surge of energy, which was a response to a particular situation when I came back in 1969. That was the time of John Jenkins's bombs in pipelines and uh, public buildings and so on. And the early road signs campaign of Kandetha Suryaith and uh, Free Wales Army trial. I didn't, you know, have a terrible lot of, to say to the Free Wales Army, but yet they were imprisoned on front of charges just to keep them out of the way for the investiture, you know. And because I'd lived in countries including sort of late Franco-Spain and Brezhnev, Russia, my sense of what what is uh, politics was rather broader than parliamentary politics. And I could see that, you know, things verging on the violent and um, that this was happening and not really registering. I mean, in, in London, I'd been... You know, as a journalist, you don't you don't become an active in any party. But I was I was somewhere to the left of the Labour Party in British terms, and um, I had been a student at Oxford. I remember getting you know Raymond Williams's Cultural Society. I didn't understand it entirely, I have to say, at the time, but. Um, I was not, of course, his generation, but I was a generation more or less a little bit younger than Stuart Hall and those people. And Aldous Murdoch was married to my tutor, John Bailey, and she at that time was regarded as 
New Left. She was in the May Day Manifesto and so on. So without being very close to that group, I had absorbed what you might call the cultural term in left-wing. The first wave New Left was a cultural term which sort of said, you know, broadcasting is, it's not just elections and so on, it's what goes on across the culture. And um, so what I've only realised in retrospect is in British terms, I mean, the subject matter of the Welsh extremist is, comes to me from the experience of that particular time and the attitudes I couldn't uh, accept about the Welsh language, particularly associated in politics with George Thomas, which I think was the kind of low point of uh, Welsh Labourism. There was always a, another kind of Welsh Labourism, uh, which was indeed um, well disposed to Welsh, the Clairdwyn Hills, people from North Wales, from Anglesey and so on, but they were promoted. So, you know, they they may have started with an interest in Welsh affairs, but they became ministers for the colonies or whatever. And uh, so they were never really in a position to do anything except sort of say complimentary things about Welsh and the the actual Secretary of State for Wales in that period, well, he lost the election, he was removed in 1970, but when I came in 1969, the man who sort of reacted personally against planet, against Welsh extremists, and really gave me quite some amusement to joust with him was, was um, George Thomas, because one could, you know, you couldn't ask in a way for a for a better opponent. So it was a response to that. And then I got the response to the book, of course. The, the book is obviously, as you said, it's, it's written in the midst of this febrile atmosphere with you know, the investiture. There's a wave of direct action, including you know, bombings. And that's really interesting that you were you know, adjacent to the first wave of the new left. And looking at the book now... I can certainly see, yeah, that the absolute parallels with it because it is, you know, in many ways a cultural study. So once it's out, then I'm just wondering what the response is because the first part of the book, I mean, it's clear to me that the audience is possibly that progressive section of the British New Left to try to explain, in a way, Welsh language. Well, the immediate response, I mean, the book had the good luck, or I'm not sure what it was, to have some sort of blanket coverage in the, you know, even on the day of publication. I had, of course, worked for Times newspapers, so I could expect, you know, the Times yeah. sometimes to review. But I think it was due to my um, editor at Golanx, who uh, was a man called Giles Gordon, who went on to be a famous... Uh, literary agent, I should have stuck with him because he was the man who who started getting these astronomical sums for. I should have finished the novel and, and used him as an agent, but I didn't. Um, so it had that kind of blanket coverage. And what's interesting, looking at the reviewers in the British press, everybody, all the books editors, found a Welsh person yeah. because... There are no English 
experts on Wales, um, like there are on, you know, I had been a, an expert on Russia, sort of thing, who they would come to with a book to review on Russia. But there are no experts on Wales. No one who's studying Wales in England at that time, anyhow. So they think of a, who have they heard of and who probably is in London, who is Welsh and therefore knows about Wales. But of course, by doing that, you were, I was aiming the book at the English left and the English new left. But in fact, it was being given to <laughs> Welsh people to review. And um, it was it's very interesting. I mean, The Guardian gave it to Raymond Williams, and this was excellent from my point of view. But um, and he said, oh, you must listen to this, you know, and and. In retrospect, it is not strange in any way that he should have, as it were, uh, commended the book to the left because my presuppositions about the role of culture, one of the things Raymond Williams at the time and the new left was, you know, in broadcasting, instead of these monoliths, the BBC, because there were only three television channels in those days, you want more voices, you know, so saying, what about Welsh language broadcasting sort of fitted that? And so the people of the New Left, many of them had this, or the fathers, if you like, of the New Left, Richard Hoggart, Raymond Williams, they all came from a literary background into politics. Um, and that's why they gave uh, attention to the wider picture. And so... Of course, Welsh language culture being very literary, this it fitted in that you know. So there was that that response. There were no really or very few and marginal hostile criticisms, but Welsh historians, not Di Smith, who wasn't on my, on the radar of the of the the book editors at that time, but Glamour Williams of an older generation sort of very gently sort of said, you know, this man doesn't know very much about the industrial history of uh, largely English-speaking South Wales and so on, and they're completely correct because I think that uh, down the years has been the, the, the most solid criticism, and it's absolutely... Right, because if you read the first paragraph of the Welsh Extremist, it says this is about the pressures on the Welsh language community and the response to that as we get it in literature. And that's really what the book is about. But because there was the beginnings of talking about devolution, didn't mean quite what it came to mean later, but the Welsh office had been established, which recognised a Welsh dimension. But immediately that had happened, and particularly with George Thomas in command at the Welsh office, it seemed a very anti-democratic situation where one minister had responsibility and power for things which in London were shared across a number of ministries. And so devolution was being discussed in terms of you know, democratic deficit, there's no accountability. So 
I had to take account. So I had that one chapter on the relation of the Welsh speakers to non-Welsh speakers, or in those days people used the term Anglo-Welsh, which is now <laughs> forgotten. So it's uh, I had never lived in what you might call an English-speaking, mainly English-speaking Wales, so it's not really the subject of of the book, but I had to sort of touch on this question of devolution and say, well, maybe if we had more, then we would speak to each other. And I think the subsequent history of the book, in publishing terms, what happened was, it's quite an interesting story, when the Golanks with the publishers, and I'd gone to them because I had already written a short book on George Orwell, and George Orwell's publishers, for many of his books, were, of course, Golanks, who were the left book club publishers. So I'd gone to Collins, but they had no paperback imprint. So after they had reprinted within a month the hardback, and that had sold out, and but more slowly than the first, I thought, well, perhaps, perhaps I can get a paperback edition of this book. And I went to somebody who had been on the Russian course, you know, networking, somebody I... Um, knew of because he'd, he'd been through the same uh, and was launching a, a, a new imprint, a new firm of publishers to do what you might call quality paperbacks. And he said, oh, gosh, with reviews and so on like this, yes, of course, we'll, we'll take it to our next meeting. And then he came back very sheepishly and said, sorry, we, we can't do it because... Our new sales manager, who we just appointed, is Welsh. And he said, with my heart on hand on my heart, I couldn't go around the country promoting this book. You see, so it was a well, it was, you know, where, where there was hostility, <laughs> it was more. So, but in the meantime, Robert Griffith in the Lulva had approached Golags very enterprisingly. His was a new, relatively new enterprise in Talabont near Aberystwyth, now one of the main publishers in Wales, of Welsh and to some extent in English. And Robert Griffith uh, was his way committed to the cause of the Welsh language and it was uh, his firm was an investment. If I remember rightly, he had walked off the... Uh, platform when they were giving degrees at Bangor in protest uh, at getting a degree from an institution that treated the Welsh language so badly. And he'd walked off and started this company. And uh, he approached uh, Golags and bought the paperback rights. And he sold copies of various editions of that over of, of the 50 years that have gone by, I think it sort of more or less dried up after about 35 years of selling regularly in Wales mainly. Well, I, I don't know exactly, but probably mainly in Wales. So its audience in the long term, and, you know, it, it was a kind of, in, in publishing terms for that kind of book, the Golags was a success, but... It was all over within a year. Nobody. But 
the Lolva paperbacks sold to a smaller market, but steadily for a long time. And I, you know, whereas the Welsh language press and the Welsh language figures like Gwynfor Evans, you know, they were all over the top in their response because it was saying what people had been saying in Welsh, quite a lot of it, anyhow, but it was saying it in in the, the language of the times in English. So, in a way, that was not a critical response. But the response in English-speaking Wales is probably where the book had the greatest any effect that it did have. And I think it had it in two ways that, you know, I, I know anecdotally of uh, several individuals who have seen it as as an Im- important in their own sort of personal trajectory in relation to the language and the family or the language in the area they lived and so on. But on the other hand, it, it has been an irritant and produced a, a kind of a dialogue. I mean, uh, you know, I I disagree with Di Smith on a lot of things, but it's it's been very good thing that 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 position came into dialogue with the uh, um, with, with the Welsh language position, uh, rather than, as it were, one being so dominant that uh, uh, it didn't need to listen to the other, and uh, that, of course, was the the important role I think in, in this question of of uh, Raymond Williams that he, being outside though from inside very much as I was from outside, though from inside, that he was able to say, well, these are both whales. And and to foster that, uh, the, the definition of whales as a place where there were more than one centre of uh, consciousness and self-definition. So there's a tendency, and I'm particularly guilty of this, I think, to be very pessimistic about whales and Welsh politics because things don't often seem to happen sort of as a like a groundhog day quality things just keep up it's the same story the same story but obviously when I read the book it made the changes that have happened since 1971 seem rather enormous devolution the institutionalization of the Welsh language and it makes you realize how rapidly things can actually change so I just want to know did you actually see any of the things that have happened, happening? Did you see any of the, the, this as possible at the time? At the moment of writing, I think I was really just uh, an act of communicating the feelings within myself, but also within the wider Welsh language culture at the time and and trying to convey the uh, the springs of the movements that were happening uh, within Welsh and in the protest movement and so on. But there were certain areas. I I became very much associated with the campaign for Welsh language television. And that was because one of the things I did in that um, freelance period and afterwards was I was a television critic so there was a lot of um, there were 
a whole series of government reports in, in London, I mean, in, at a British level, about the future of broadcasting. So I was well, I, I think, in, in protest movements. It can be a good thing to sort of specialise in something you, you know a bit about. And the, I really, you know, when, when people in positions of uh, power and influence in television in, in Wales were saying, oh, you know, it's technically impossible. I mean, if you were following the field, you knew that the technologies were on the way, you know, and there were pressures, again, I think, associated with the new left for, you know, more voices, more channels. And so S4C came in in the end on the coats of the fourth channel because not too many people were going to miss the fourth channel in Wales if it went to S4C, something that would have not been... So I followed that area and and saw the... Um, I persuaded the Lever Hill Trust to give me a... to let me go and do a short uh, study visit to Switzerland, Belgium... Mainly those two places. I looked at some other places from afar, but those are the places I visited, you know, to see is it impossible to have a sort of several language channels as in Switzerland and how do they how do they manage to afford it and so on. Um, so yes, I could see I could see that coming. And of course there were there were people who were concentrating on Things which, which of course I supported, like you know, that you could deal with the authorities and so on. But very soon, my I always had more than one job. You know, I had what was keeping me alive was teaching English literature and trying to introduce the study of Welsh literature in English and Welsh literature in Welsh translated into English in Aberystwyth, but as the common market and then the EU developed, I founded something that started as one project and turned into a centre, the Mercator Centre and so on, which was um, to do with European minorities. And so the developments, particularly, you know, in the Basque country and in Catalonia, because there I had, I didn't have the those languages, but I had Spanish, so I could get through to those people uh, from my time in Spain and so on. So I could also see a movement which was wider than, than Welsh, uh, which was connected with the development and you know even some of the terms that have come to be used in Wales come from those places like normalization, you know, means lots of different things from from regularizing the uh, terminology in the language to uh, the wider idea that you could live your you live your life in that language and so on, normalization. So yes, I could see things in the, that broad way happening. There was the rhetoric of um, decolonization, you know. I I had come into contact early with the sort of um, post-independence African movements 
and literature because my parents, after after retiring, went for a few years to to Ghana, newly independent Ghana in the days of Nkrumah, to my father taught law there. So I had met the students coming over to London and so on. So I was aware of that. And then coming from France and Spain, particularly, you had the sort of the beginnings, you know, the identification, I would think, by today, I would say over-identification with decolonization. You know, people who had from France who had served in Algeria but were Bretons were coming back and saying, well, you know, Arabic was treated by the French in Algeria just just as Breton was treated in, you know. And so you've got all these comparisons. The, the, the Welsh not was could be found in the colonies, it could be found in the European minorities. So there was that um, mainly European, but also wider sort of decolonization. I never bought the idea myself that, you know, Wales could be sort of simply slotted in as another colony because... I was too aware of, you know, the complicities and uh, as well in the... Uh, but in the cultural sphere, I think undoubtedly the, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the comparisons worked. So, you know, I was slightly impatient <laughs> with discussion, you know, today yeah. is where a colony because you can be an... In, is an internal colony the same as... A colony, if it were, you wouldn't need to call it an internal colony. There was a difference, but there was a similarity. And, you know, um, these nuances seem to get lost. That's one of the reasons I get so depressed. It's a, it's a fundamentally anti-intellectual discussion these days. But we'll go back to the colonial issue, if that's okay, Ned, because I've, I've actually got a separate question on it. And I'm glad you mentioned the context, because... You know, it is in many ways a, like a, a book that's clearly informed by post-colonial theory. I just wanted to talk about some of the actual, you know, concrete changes that have happened since, i.e. devolution. There's an interesting line, you know, you say, you wrote, at present we in Wales are unable to establish any kind of identity. We are not a part of England, and yet we are not a country on our own. So obviously the discourse around the creation of devolution in 1997 yeah. was very much about we are now a nation, you know, yeah. a, a, a nation at last and so on. I mean, my own personal perception is that you know, devolution has been what Gramsci called a, a passive revolution, you know, something that gives the illusion of change and does actually make some cosmetic changes, but in fact is actually has actually been quite tightly controlled and a top-down process, and it's sort of prevented any real popular participation in the change that's happening. So with your perspective of pre-devolution Wales and post-devolution Wales, you know, how would you characterise devolution? I, I'm aware that's a, a very big question, but mm-hmm. how do you think it's gone? Well... As I've said, the the main purpose of the book was not to discuss Wales as a political or potentially civic 
whatever you, it, it was to to express the the feelings that led to the wish to survive of a linguistic group, really. And I had to take on the other aspect because of the incipient discussion of devolution and so on. So having said that, of course, I am, like yourself in some senses today, a citizen, a citizen of where? Well, as you say, it's not entirely clear, but it's clearer than it was that there is a kind of civic identity. And I think myself that what you might call self-conscious Welsh speakers were not uncertain of their identity as Welsh speakers uh, or as a nation uh, or the relics of a nation. Their, Their problem was with the survival of that identity. I think a lot of people outside Welsh-speaking community who are uncertain can feel that it is possible to be Welsh. They will probably have more positive views today than uh, they were perhaps led to have in the time of in 1970 uh, towards the Welsh language, but the civic structure, the fact that there is a government and so on, all these things are pretty precarious because um, it is still possible to imagine devolution being withdrawn with a certain sort of government. But uh, so far as it goes, I think it it has offered uh, a definition of Welshness that overlaps with the linguistic one, but is not necessarily uh, dependent. And of course, that that could create problems. But at the present moment, and faced with uh, the kind of government we have in London, um, it is possible to to feel complete solidarity. I should think uh, across that. So, but I sense that the question underlying your question really is um, how does language protest and social revolution, are they, they might seem at particular moments to be intertwined, but are they necessarily, and I I would say not necessarily, they belong in different dimensions, really. They um, looked at comparatively. I mean, speakers of a language can be mobilized in certain circumstances, are mobilized across divisions, because if you are treated, if your language is treated and you are, as it were, under the hatches, you're there because of that, uh, because of that language, that's how, in my view, the the kind of largest demonstrations of million and a half people in Barcelona, something, it's really the language that has brought. Then, of course, when it comes to 
politics, they have three or four and changing political parties, all of whom support independence. And then there are parties that don't, and they are the divisions within, and so on. And and it's not a it's not entirely pretty picture today. The divisions within, because parties have to campaign on all kinds of social issues beside language. So languages can mobilize across boundaries at particular moments, but. They can also be overtaken by other priorities, in particular times. And I think the 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 sort of strength of the Welsh situation, in some ways, is that across language, though there are, of course, social differences, they are relatively they are relatively within a smaller band of difference than you get, you know, when you look at the city of London and Hackney or whatever uh, you're, you're dealing with. And if, if you look at the politicians in Wales, certainly in the Labour Party and Plaid Cymru, of course, there's a, almost by definition, the politician is middle class, but um, the the backgrounds are very similar, and so that that is a kind of um, social cohesion that you can always, as it were, play these things against each other, but that's a very dangerous thing to do, I think, because the, the, the pattern is always more complicated. I mean, you can possibly... Living in Cardiff, you might feel that many Welsh speakers you know are uh, relatively economically privileged compared to other sections. But living in Anglesey, you might feel that uh, Welsh speakers are increasingly corralled into housing estates and rather run-down housing estates where retirees from the urban conglomerations of the northwest of England are, um, you know, the whole property thing. Yeah, I, I think that's extremely important. I mean, in the, well, the two issues for me that, that stem from reading about the language in the book was that on the one hand, the book is about the struggle for the language and the importance of struggle, the importance of you know, direct action. And on the one hand, for me, the language in some ways has been, if you, again, as you said, in Cardiff, so it's, ge- it's very geographically contingent, uh, in some ways has been absorbed quite neatly into what C. Wright Mills calls the, the managerial demiurge, mm. you know, the establishment. You know, it's it, in some ways it's associated with gentrification. Um, and there's an excellent article by Mabley Jones in the recent Planet, which touches on this sort of tension, actually. And it, in some ways it no longer carries with it the uh, oppositional sort of psyche, which is, uh, seems to be inherent or innate in the language movement back in the 70s, because you know, you're, you're now just as likely to find a language being spoken by like a conservative AM or a senior business person or a senior member of the Welsh government. And in that way, it's become part of the of Welsh life. And it's easy in some ways to think that it's been co-opted and neutralised. But then, as you say, it's clearly, you know, Welsh is, remains under threat as a community language in the Welsh-speaking heartlands. And 
and yeah it's it's very important i think not to get caught up in a myopic view of okay so you look at uh, a bourgeois welsh speaker in cardiff and think well therefore the language is bourgeois which has always been my criticism of people like Di smith yes <laughs> they don't approach wales in a holistic way and they is is no nuance there at all uh, and one only has to go to north wales to actually appreciate the difference so but I, in terms of the language the health of the language ned i mean i think it was harold carter or possibly yourself as well is i think harold carter said that official bilingualism was actually a step to language death because he felt it would die as a community language and in some ways i i agree with that because it you know the welsh language has been institutionalized in education in the political apparatus in civil society but it's simultaneously clearly under threat as a living language in yeah. you know Pembrokeshire and Gwynedd and Ceredigion and yeah. and so on so how do you view the status of the Welsh language well I think what again what sort of comparative views I bring to this are that you know despite the best efforts of language planners and so on, language is so tied up with every aspect of uh, society that you make predictions at your peril. And, uh, of course, the the large-scale migration into these areas where Welsh is strongest is the probably the, the most damaging feature of recent years. It's happened many waves before now, but the this this results from things like house prices, the differential between richer areas of the UK and the open market and so on. The other hand, up to a point, people who have moved in, it's a very nicely balanced question. Um, We all know people who have moved into Welsh-speaking areas who have become their children or they themselves have become, have enriched the the culture and and so on. And the the education system which you refer to and which, of course, every education system is in some ways bureaucratized and, um, and so on, but in so far as language learning, you know, if, if an area is not overwhelmed, it can, um, and you, you, you have reverse migration in different times, and I suppose I'm an example of it, and coming back to Wales and so on, and that's always an um, 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 unpredictable things in the uh, economy are not under any single control and having a welsh government is in has many uh, having a welsh government with the restricted powers that, that but quite extensive powers uh, allows language questions to come to the surface in in a way the the problem in the in the seventies, as I remember it, with with uh, broadcasting and so on, was was to get 
the question onto the agenda at all in London, because Wales is whatever, 5% of the population, not only so many votes in Parliament and so on. You had a, you had a, a Welsh day in, for questions and, and so on. But really, just getting things on the agenda. So that's, an, uh, that's, a, that's a, a win for devolution. Um, it, it doesn't mean you, you get the answers or the correct answers all the time, but, but at least you get the discussion. So that's, that's, that's an achievement, I think. And then, of course, more things as we, as we are becoming aware daily now, more things are outside the control, not just of the devolved government, but of the British national government, the whole sort of globalisation. Um, and I, I often feel that the left has not really, and I'm not sure that I have the answer, but hasn't, hasn't really taken on globalisation. It's easy to condemn it. It's easy to condemn the, the kind of Trumpist reaction to it. Um, but the, the fact remains that sort of the movement of international capital has raised the standard of living of many intermediate <laughs> countries, if not the poorest, at least, you know, quite a, a, a section of the world. So the right one, one is against, one who's been against the exploitation of people in other countries, is one glad that this movement of capital is now improving, but at the expense of... Uh, all these things impinge on us as well, don't they? Yeah. I mean, um, so it's it's um, this leads us into into vast and difficult areas to handle, but I think have to be have to be addressed. I'm going to go back to broadcasting now, if that's okay, Ned. So obviously, you wrote a chapter on broadcasting, your hopes for the devolution of broadcasting. So while we do now have S4C. You know, broadcasting is still not devolved. What do you think of the current status of you know Welsh language broadcasting, or indeed Welsh broadcasting as a whole, the modern Welsh culture industry? Culture industry, right? Well, well, let's focus on broadcasting in particular. You know, the trouble when you are identified as having written a book, which somehow says something about Wales is that you you are uh, somehow expected to be an oracle. <laughs> I, I try insofar as at my advanced stage one uh, takes part in society to be a good citizen and turn out, you know, to vote for the least worst Yes. Options regarding all kinds of factors. Um, I take a particular interest in certain areas, and you say, well, culture. And, and I suppose the areas I take the most interest in, in are communication, which you know is, is culture, of course. Um, and um, of course, we, you know, when. Perhaps I could talk about this historically by saying this, you know, in the field of 
communication. When I established Planet, my idea was really more suitable to, you know, a daily paper. In other words, I wanted to create a forum where there was, uh, in English, in Wales, something of a void, I thought, anyhow. So... Um, if you look at the early planets, there are very various, it's, you know, there are things about motoring and uh, uh, tourism and, and so on. It isn't just a, um, but by being slotted into the old Labour versus nationalist divide, planet became self-defining as more radical uh, and more oppositional rather than a forum. And, of course, there is always room for radical magazines, but the most worrying social aspect in the field of communication today is not lack of being able to express radical positions, but having a forum in which different views can meet and in other words, what kind of cohesive society can you have when we may now be faced with, you know, with all its faults, the BBC has until now performed this kind of forum. But more and more, we seem to be going towards the American pattern, you know, where you have your Fox channel, you have your public service channels and people just like they have their own they follow the same people on twitter or whatever this is this is very alarming for anybody uh, who has sort of believed that you can influence other people to and be influenced by other people and come to uh hopefully rational solutions and compromises um, uh, so so it's um, that, that I find very alarming in society I don't do social media myself I was a kind of early adopter with earlier IT you know where you did your own MS-DOS uh, programming and things and but the way it has developed has become you know, of course, there are there are advantages. You can summon up a a quick demonstration, or you can you can get messages out of uh, authoritarian societies uh, by uh, these means. So it's not it's not a simple condemnation, but it is it is pretty worrying. So that's an area of culture which I think is very very problematic now. In, in sort of Welsh culture more generally, well, you know, whereas in the Welsh extremists, I was sort of taking this literary definition of Welsh culture, and I was, you know, fortunate that 20th century, uh, the first half of 20th century particularly, it was, a, uh, I would say, one of the classic periods of, of Welsh language writing, uh, like periods of the Middle Ages and so on, after the long 19th century, uh, which we try to forget about. It was, uh, in many ways, 
uh, Welsh was strong as a language, but weak in its in, in its content, uh, literary content. But of course, one of the this is again very characteristic of minority cultures that because people are uh, as were thrown back and often without large resources for some of the arts, the the arts in the language which they have become the dominant arts. And of course, with the more relaxed atmosphere of winning a certain amount of territory for the language, well, this means that people of talent may go into other into the other arts. Um, you know, it's been a period of some flowering in the visual arts in, in Wales, I would say, both within people who are form part of the Welsh language culture and, and those who do not. Um, so it's, it, one doesn't define the culture so much in literary terms, maybe. And, you know, at a more practical level, people... You need people with certain skills to do the broadcasting in Welsh, so maybe they become broadcasters of some kind, producers, front of microphone people, and that is their contribution to culture rather than, you know, writing books and, and so on. So, of course, the of course, we're part of what you might call Western... People drive cars. They do this. The characteristics of um, European national and subnational cultures uh, are changing, and they have very much in common. And um, translation allows the linguistic boundaries. You know the various kinds of machine translation and. Uh, the fashion almost for translation, the, the the hurdles for ideas as one to to travel are, are lower than they were, where only people who had a good command of other languages could sort of import ideas and so on. So Welsh speakers often look at Ireland with the kind of uh, ambiguous feelings, you know, they had... Um, independence quite a long time ago and because of uh, all kinds of factors the Irish language is, of, uh, is not in a good condition though having initially at least had the aim of being changed into the single national language and then in English well you know when there is a subject matter like the troubles in the north or Northern Ireland, whichever we want to say, then you get a kind of Irish literature that people outside sort of say, oh, yes, this is Irish literature. But from day to day, people write things in English in, in, in Ireland that, well, they may be good, they may be not so good. I don't sort of particularly, I'm not particularly involved in that um, estimation of those books, which I could maybe should read. And the same with English and Wales. I mean, since anybody who lives in Wales for a certain short time, anyhow, is in some sense a citizen, 
the Arts Council has to sponsor and uh, develop uh, the work of talented people. Is this Welsh literature? Well, yes, in some kind of technical sense it is, but it's it's not a national literature in the sense this used to be understood. You know, authors here and there are called Wales-based, or and they can be American, they can, and they, so on, so and people can come from a thoroughly Welsh background or Welsh-speaking background and write in this international language called English, and they may have a following, they may have a larger following outside Britain or outside Wales than they do in Wales. Um, So the language, again, offers a certain cohesion. It doesn't really matter where you come from or what you write about if you write in Welsh. If you write in English in Wales, I mean, maybe it's very relevant to lives here. Maybe it's very relevant to lives as lived in the UK. Or maybe it's of interest to uh, addicts of science fiction in the United States. You know, you have you have uh, comics about King Arthur in in the United States and, and Britain. So, uh, is that a Welsh achievement um, or? <laughs> I'm very glad that you've spoke about the public sphere then, because in some ways we've got all this new information, we've got access to the internet, we're more connected to each other in some ways than, than we ever have been. Yeah, as you say, in, in many ways, people are actually more disconnected. You know, the public sphere is more fractured, people are more dug in to these positions. And that I think the most damaging thing is that people are far less open to dialogue than ever before and there are a number there are a number of reasons for that and in my mind the new media well not just the, the establishment media and the new media that has replaced it in wales this podcast accepted of course is in many ways moronic you know it's juvenile soporific we've gone backwards in many ways i mean i remember as a, an undergraduate and then as a phd student you know you had planet contemporary wales Safir. You know, there was no devolved broadcasting, but there seemed to be a public sphere that was at least intellectual. There was dialogue, there were debates, you know, there were responses. That seems to have fallen by the wayside. Anyway, there's just a couple more things I want to ask, Ned, if that's okay, before we we wrap up. I'm glad you mentioned about the the influence of the post-colonial and the decolonization movement, because... That is something that really, that as a context and knowing that that was inspiring, you know, really makes sense because one of the questions I have is the book really is a post-colonial book. It's one of the few books, you know, along with, you know, obviously Michael Hector, Bud Cleef, and now people like Kirsty Bahata and Daniel Williams that try to explain the Welsh psyche, you know, the Welsh condition and why you think it's different. Um and obviously, as you said, it's no longer a fashionable approach. It's what it's a debate and discussion which is defined by really bad faith, anti-intellectual arguments. Uh, but it's actually one that I still find personally very useful. I mean, it seems to me that despite the evolution, you know, much of this malaise, this you know, colonial condition continues, particularly in in the realm of culture. So I was just wondering if you have any more thoughts on on that. If you look at the modern Welsh condition, do you still see it as being influenced by 
you know, ambivalence, by hybridity, by all these things that cause people to to use post-colonial uh, theory in the first place. I'm afraid I think that the past is another country, you know, as they say, and yeah. that, uh, of course, many of the features that were there then are there now, but the configuration of factors changes and changes in a way that I think, you know, to people who were there then is very different now. I think I would say something like this, that uh, anyone who is moved to be activist in some way, uh, this is the result of pressures, isn't it? There are pressures on society, within society, um, and there are pressures on groups, and these are felt by individuals who then may respond to these pressures and the way people who work in words, let's say, respond to these pressures may at some moment uh, elicit a, a response which is more than individual, which is a group response. And then a counter-pressure is exerted and this is how society changes and sometimes it changes specifically sometimes it changes violently as we are observing now i mean i spend too much of my time because of my russian reading different sources around the ukraine and in ukrainian to a certain extent as well i can read and one sees that uh, of course you can explain this as one man's megalomania and, and so on. But uh, I think if you come from a kind of uh, leftist background, you, you, you try to look at wider social factors. And, you know, without going into it now, you can see where the pattern has, has developed and which we, including we in Wales, in some ways, were complicit. I mean, the the whole uh, Ukrainian famine of the early 30s was swept under the carpet, not only by the, the Soviets, but by the, all our Welsh heroes of the left. The response to this, which you have in the Baltic countries and uh, Ukraine, has been a kind of nationalism, which in turn has been very intolerant and is now producing another reaction in the east of Ukraine. All this connected very much with language, I, don't, I hardly need to say. So in one's own personal activity, I think, and for reasons no doubt connected with Welsh religion in the longer run, the, uh, the boundaries of protest and movement were in some ways limited, but also limited against violence. That is not just what you might call a Welsh virtue of the nonconformist tradition, which was very pacifist, but of course it also British society and in that period was open to reformism. Um, not very open, we had to push pretty hard, but so one has a responsibility to work with, to respond to the pressures 
and to to find change, but of course one has a responsibility to the whole methodology of of change as well, particularly with the kind of spread of arms. And I have in my day not advocated the, the cause of Basque Eta, but I have understood it because of what it was up against. Today, you have to ask, well, that kind of armed struggle escalates so quickly into something that is so destructive to everybody that the context has has, has changed as well. So I don't know if I'm answering yeah, your, your, your question, but... It actually brings me neatly on to one of my final questions, Ned. The book was written in the time of direct action. Nonviolent direct action in many ways is one of the defining pillars of Welsh political culture, certainly Welsh language political culture. Now, that, for me, is one of the biggest losses of devolution, because by and large, it seems to have disappeared. Cymdeithas Siriaeth are still doing fantastic work, but broader uh, non-violent direct action, you know, not just in the Welsh language world, I'm thinking like Green and Common, seems to have died, and much of the things that the left has won and the Welsh language has won have mm. stemmed from pressure brought by non-violent direct action. And mm. that does not seem to feature as a tactic, other than by... You know, obviously it does exist yeah. in the UK, yeah. Extinction Rebellion, but in Wales we've almost settled into this peaceable yes. uh, consensus, what I would call uh, this, this post-evolution cross-party consensus about you know the, uh, the Welsh, yeah. way, Welsh way. And I think it's a huge loss. So I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about the, well, the absence of direct action. Well, I, I certainly, I wouldn't say... The pacifist tradition is where is immutable in in the Welsh psyche any more than anywhere else. It is a, it is a matter of inherited tradition and situational response. I mean, under different pressures, and tradition is not a fixed thing. It it changes and can it can change altogether. So it's not a kind of a, essentialism of Welshness. It's just a historical fact that um, in this period and uh, so on. And, uh, and I agree with you that uh, nonviolent direct, direct action has uh, has its uh, limitations, uh, what, what can be achieved in a given society. But I, I just feel that the, the kind of um, the gain-loss balance in the modern world is such that um, you unleash just technologically and uh, in terms of destructive capability, you know, what the, they used to say about, you know, the armor light in one hand. Well, today you can, in one hand in, in Ukraine, you can have the blasting power to go through a tank and you know, cluster bombs and so on, and uh, and weapons of mass destruction that you can carry on your shoulder. Um, so you know, just that. that so, I mean, what you're raising really is what what um, what methods are open to uh, protest that uh, that finds itself up against 
repression that and uh, yes i think it calls for inventiveness of all kinds doesn't it i mean um, it depends on what you're up against and in, and it's easier to see it in in limited single issue terms i mean um, the way the economy is organized consumerism can sometimes be mobilized on single issue questions to attack let's say child labor in bangladesh or something like that the switch by consumers can be a pressure there are there are in in one's own society and and um, also implied in what you say is a, a sort of dissatisfaction with uh, what can be done through parliamentary politics and um, i think that's uh, together with the kind of question of social media and, and forums for discussion that is another area uh, uh, the sort of the hold i'm not now speaking of particular parties in particular countries but just generally i think the organization by party nobody has really found a, a better alternative but it, it's very um, it's very short term because no party wishes to lose power so that the horizon is always very limited and faced with you know all the climate change can problems i mean how how can a party working on having to gain majority in the next election advance policies that will be in the short term pretty unpopular so it's, it's i'm aware that we are uh, we're in danger of sort of talking more about the dilemmas than the solutions but uh, but the solutions have to face the have to be recognizing the dilemmas don't they you talked about you know there was a almost an angry response and you, you know you acknowledged that you you may have not misunderstood but mischaracterized you know the anglo welsh or the non welsh speaking uh, welsh condition that was certainly what you know your die smiths and things were up in arms about but it's very interesting because my own experience and you know indeed my my actual phd research found a lot of ambivalence you know i'm researching people who don't speak welsh yes and asking them about their welsh identity there is a there was a deep ambivalence and there was a deep you know there was a struggle for people to define them to define their own identity yeah. when they fell outside you know what raymond williams would call the two truths of Wales, you know, the Welsh speaking Wales and, and then almost Labour Wales. So I thought it's it's very interesting because, in my opinion, is even though you may have been criticised for it, mm-hmm. there is clearly, in my experience, a large degree of, of truth in mm-hmm. the fact that there is an ambivalence within the non-Welsh speaking uh, world. Yes. You know, and that is, it's just some, something I, I recognise and agree with. You know, I don't get offended by yes. someone pointing out what I find yes. to be relatively self-evident. And yeah, I just, so I guess I just wanted to say that, you know, that yes. I think it still holds. It still is important. And it's maybe controversial 
and still controversial for someone to try to make a distinction between, you know, different structures of feeling in Wales, between the Welsh-speaking world and the non-Welsh-speaking world. You know, the, the easy way out is to say, ah, oh, we're all Welsh, you know, there's no difference. But there, you know, there is, there is a difference. And I think there is, a, what, what you wrote in 1971 is still certainly holds up. Well, I am not, you know, I am not the person to speak for. <laughs> when you're speaking Wales, I mean, what I've observed happening is, I think I perhaps mentioned this, on the one hand, there has been a dialogue, which you are pursuing now by saying what you are saying, and everybody, in a way, must speak for themselves. And population is so mobile, so um, uh, mixed in origin that it is very difficult to draw any. I mean, the the experience of the last 50 years uh, certainly shows that what was often a, a kind of buried ambivalence towards the language has in some people, quite a number of people, um, created a wish to reclaim either very dramatically in their own lives and moved into the Welsh language group and made very positive contributions. And a greater number of people who have felt that that they would want their children to um, and so you have, you know, you have those features in places like parts of the Honda and so on, where the the children can speak to the grandparents, but in Welsh, but not to their parents and so on, because this is how history has worked out. You have that, and you have you have pe- people who represent a view that there is a distinctive. English language, Welsh culture. I would say that is a more difficult proposition. You, it is easier to argue there is, you know, the word culture is a slippery word, isn't it? It's South South Wales industrial culture. That certainly is a culture in the certain sense of the word. But could one say that? Wrexham or Frill or uh, Sandrindod, where English is the far the most dominant language, uh, is that the same culture as as the South Wales ex-mining post-industrial culture? Um, so the word culture is used at all kinds of level, from local to national and beyond. But, I mean, I think the principles one must keep to are that people must, in the end, define themselves as individuals and as groups. I think the the difficulty comes in the kind of intermediate, you know, how far is people's identity created by institutions? And I would say that the creation of Welsh institutions has... I mean, that applies whether you're in Wrexham or in Cardiff. Let's say the pandemic, you've been subject to Welsh government rules. If you think 
they were better rules or better applied, uh, then that may make you feel glad to be Welsh, you know? And, yeah. and so with time, I mean, identities change, they change with time. Plenty of Welsh speakers lost the identity of being Welsh over time, and their children lost it completely through migration, through, you know, and then there is the counter movement and uh, all kinds of factors determine this, but one, um, in the end, has to rely on what you might call the creative power of individuals and institutions. I mean, what, what, if there is ambivalence, if there is uncertainty, then the powers of attraction and the powers of uh, repulsion also affect one. Yeah, it's, it's such a, I mean, my own perspective is I do view culture in a, I guess, the Raymond Williams sense of, you know, it, with yeah. past life and institutions. And, yeah. and my own research has been, as you said, that there is a difficulty in, in saying, well, what holds in yes. South Wales is identical to Flandrin Dodd or Wrexham. And, and yes. the three Wales model, or you know, British Wales, is the least coherent swathe. And what I've always thought is that, you know, this, these areas, yes. you know, they are cultures in themselves, but they also mm-hmm. contain residual, they're very permeable and they contain yes. residual elements of the, cult, the sort of strongest yes. that sort of surround them. But going into my last issue now is that what is interesting is that presumably in the, you know, as you know, in the 70s, there was, people were very open, George Thomas and so on. You could be essentially very hostile to the Welsh language in a way that is essentially not possible today. And, and it seems as if the George Thomases of this world have sort of died out. At least, you know, there's you know very little open dislike of devolution and uh, the Welsh language in the political sphere. But what does persist is the professional Welsh person that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, someone who won't rock the boat too much, someone who's very happy to get ahead and do whatever is necessary for their career, but within the boundaries of, you know, unionism, laborism, yeah. capitalism. That yeah. remains the dominant archetype in Welsh yeah. political yeah. and civic life. I mean, Carwin Jones is a classic example. Here is someone who has suddenly found a voice and apparently a a political conscience, you know, after he sort of retired. And it just, yeah, it's just interesting that that element of the book still definitely seems seems to hold. And and as well as, you know, you said when the book originally came out, well, the response is in London, oh, we'll get a a Welsh yeah. person who lives in London, a professional Welsh person to review it, yeah. that hasn't changed at all either. You know, it's very no. easy to make a nice uh, niche for yourself no. living in London, you know, not having to live in Wales and yes. almost uh, the go-to expert in uh, the British, yes. uh, despite not having lived in Wales for yeah. 20, 30, you know, years or whatever. And what I also think is a, an interesting parallel is, you know, you write the book, you, know, you wrote The Welsh Extremist and... It's designed to appeal in some ways to the new left, the new British left. Yeah. My take on Wales at the moment is that in Wales itself, there are two lefts. One is Labour adjacent, 
Uh, it's overwhelmingly English speaking. It's concerned with the trade union apparatus. You know, many of the people involved in it are yes. English, you know, young students. Yes. And, and their focus is still on, you know, largely on Westminster. Then you have the Welsh, let's say the planet left, from yeah. Dathas, the left of Plaid Cymru and others, whose focus is more on devolved politics, you know, They've used different methods, different culture. And there's these two worlds still seem to be oil and water. And I was after, when I was reading The Welsh Extremist, yeah. I thought how useful it would be to give yeah. to the former group, almost as an introduction to... Yeah. Because you know, in some ways, it's the people will moan about this, but in some ways, it's, it's the British left based in Wales. It's not yeah. going to engage itself very much in... Um, and so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on... Well, yes, um, in, the, in the short term, anyhow, I mean, I, I, I find myself welcoming the kind of, uh, no doubt, temporary alliance of the Labour Party of Wales with Plaid Cymru because it always was a matter of worry to me that people who on many social issues most would, would agree with each other were, um, you know, condemned to... To insulting the other side, as it were, and I think um, whatever happens, that has improved. But of course, parties, again, faced with the next election, have to find points of differentiation, and um, it it would be, I think it it would be a pity for that to be language, and uh, I also welcome the kind of evolution within the Welsh Labour Party. Uh, from the days of, of, of George Thomas to the, the present time. So that is, that is all, um, positive. But of course, it's, I, I think it also is a reaction to the, the movement to the right in, in London government. So that could change. But the other thing I would say is that for me personally and, I think for the situation, uh, an aspect of Brexit, which is very unfortunate, is that the loss of a context which is multinational and multilingual, particularly where the Welsh language is called multilingual, because our discussion, because it has been Wales-centred, has inevitably been sort of what is the defined... You're Welsh-speaking Wales against the English-speaking Wales, but the moment you introduce uh, a third and a fourth language, then you realise that in international relations and interlanguage relations, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to trust some people in the other group whom you don't fully understand. You have to trust them to work to some shared principles or aims with yourself. I mean, this is difficult. It's difficult in the European Union, and it may prove, uh, but as the child of the war and the immediate post-war, I shared that, you know, being growing up partly in Germany after the war, playing with German children on the street while my father 
ran a denazification tribunal. I belonged to that never again generation. And um, I've always looked at the question of language as one which, you know, you, you, you have to act within your language group, which will not be always progressive or uh, in its attitudes any more than the majority group will be. And you have to trust and develop connections with um, people. And that then applies, of course, between, between the groups you've been talking about in Wales. And we start with, with um, many advantages over other places where the language groups live together but don't overlap in the same to the same degree and you know there's there's a great deal of uh, family overlap in Wales that um, there's a great deal of um, overlap in the workplace you you do know you don't get uh, such uh, I mean this was brought home to me in the field of broadcasting when I went to Belgium. I mean, Belgium in those days, I don't know today, but uh, the Flemish broadcasters, and they, they couldn't even agree to, to share a mast, you know, because you had to have a Flemish mast. And, uh, and there, are, there are corners of uh, Europe where you, you used to have, anyhow, a different ambulance according to your language group, you know, so, uh, so you I don't know what you're supposed to do if you were knocked down by a bus. You'd say, get me a German-speaking or get me Italian-speaking ambulance. Or, or, so there are, there are places where these questions are much more acute than Wales. And I, so I think we start from quite a bit, but basically I think the, the question arises at that sort of intermediate level where you have, um, uh, that you have to have somewhere where in the public space, you are talking to each other. And I, I cheer myself up by saying, well, perhaps we're doing that. Yeah, well, we've, we've been yeah. giving it a go. And that's been the, the point of this podcast uh, historically. Now, just, just one final thing, something you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of an insider, outsider perspective. It just got me thinking, it's very interesting. So many of Wales's best public intellectuals and best work on Wales has been written with people who have an outsider perspective. You know, I'm thinking Saunders Lewis was born in Liverpool. You know, you have Simon Brooks. Michael Hechter was obviously American, but, you know, has this interesting outsider perspective. You've got yourself, Patrick McGuinness, uh, and then obviously Raymond Williams, to an extent, was an insider yeah. and an outsider. It, it's a very important perspective, which I don't necessarily think is appreciated how important it is for people to, to to sort of bring that bird's eye view on their own country. Yes, I, I think you're, you're quite right. Many of the sort of statements about Wales and English have been by people who in some sense are outside. But of course, against that, you have to lay the fact that a, a lot of Welsh speakers have been saying similar things or different things, but have been doing it in Welsh. And I would regard, you know, myself today as mainly not a communicator of Welsh-speaking Wales in, in English, but a communicator of wider 
international development in Welsh to sort of because yeah. that's perhaps where I have some expertise that is is not so common in 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 the Welsh language culture. So so um, how many languages do you speak? Well, you speak is a kind of slippery word too because um, I have a piece of paper that says that I speak Russian to interpret the standard, but it's getting rusty, but I have no problem writing, reading, uh, well, certainly reading and also sort of writing simple messages. Uh, then, you know, I've worked in, worked in French and European projects. I lived in Spain. Uh, all these things get rusty with non-use and they revive with use. I was a child in Germany. I did all my subjects through German, but my German is pretty rusty because I cut off at the age of 13. So, yes, it's situational Ned, again, yeah. Ned, all I can say is thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real, real pleasure and an honour. The book is fantastic. You know, Planet is... You've created, I would say, a Welsh, a modern Welsh institution, and it remains, I would say, the main vehicle for the sort of necessary intellectual dialogue that you talked about, which is just an incredible achievement. So thank you so much for giving us your time. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dan. <laughs> I hope to speak to you again sometime.